I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning, the end. So where to start? This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I realize what I'm about to say comes as a great shock. However, using great presence of mind, I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. show last week so much, and there was so much more to talk about that we decided to do another interview. So here's our second interview with Lorraine Van Tool. All right, I got my Yeti close by, so make sure that the sound, everything, the squiggly lines look good. All right, I'm good. Okay, so yesterday at the end of our conversation, you mentioned that there was so much that we hadn't gotten around to talking about. So I was I was wondering if there was anything in particular that you would 
most like to talk about that we didn't get into or that you feel is most important to talk about that isn't getting talked about or isn't understood enough? Yeah, well, you know, what I'm thinking of is this latest metaphor. As I mentioned before, I love using metaphors. And one way to look at the sanctuary as well, perhaps this is coming to mind because I'm preparing for a live event with people who are a bit more concrete thinkers. And I can tell through our conversation, you're quite seasoned and advanced. And probably many of your listeners are too, but there might be a few you know, who are having a little bit of trouble grasping what soul authority really is about and how to conceptualize this idea, maybe grasp it a little bit better. And I work with people from all walks of life and sometimes more concrete thinkers. So I do have a metaphor that I could share that might help. So one way also to look at ourselves or to perhaps relate to ourselves is to think of ourselves as a vessel, as a home. And just as your home has a fuse box and invisible energy, so to speak, coming from a mysterious source that powers your house, the same can be said about us, our vessels, our bodies. And the way I have broken things down to better understand this analogy and look at these metaphors is to think of that tree as the grounding rod. And every home has a grounding rod. It helps to protect against power searches. It helps protect against short-circuiting of appliances when there's you know too much power running and damage to be done. Most of us are more familiar with the search protector that we use for our computers. But in, in any event, it still can happen that appliances cause some sort of short circuit or tripped fuse and then you go to the fuse box and you reset it and you find out what area in the house, you know, this apply to, so on and so forth. So the invisible sources of energy that we're talking about or that I'm using in soul authority are air, fire, earth, and water. And so we're comparing these to our breath, to air, heat, your body's heat, your immunity, your blood, the ways we can regulate our heat and the ways our autonomic nervous system works, which is through, through fever, but we also can regulate our heat and increase it, for example, through exercise, through that movement. And then there's earth, of course, and the metabolism that happens with this added heat and water that then flows through us and invigorates us and so on and so forth. So the same can happen that happens in a house when we're overloaded, any of these systems are overloaded, we can also short circuit. So now in terms of ancestral patterns and what to be on the lookout for, let's say you're grown up in a home and for some reason your parents are not educated around this fuse box, maybe don't even know where it is, or maybe things got short-circuited and they just shrugged their shoulders and thought it was broken or there's, there's something wrong and didn't even know how to resolve and fix it and stop using some outlet or some appliance or something like that. And this lack 
of the knowledge of how to resolve this problem is not passed down to you. You only find this out by going to your neighbor and discovering a fuse box and how to deal with these things. So this is kind of what happens with us and our bodies. We don't know how to reset. We don't know how to even identify often a short circuit or parts of our shelves shut down or maybe miswired or misfiring or more complicated things that happen in the human body. So I also, I have a little diagram that I use. I wasn't able to put that into the book. I'm working my way to offering it on my website and my homepage, but it's a Soul Authority Fuse Box. And I have on one column what some of the signs are when you know, everything is working correctly and what some of the signs and symptoms are when things are not working so well and maybe there is even a short circuit. So that is worked in into the book with each of the chapters on the elements. For example, let's start with your tree guide, right? This grounding rod. If you're not fully connected, if this is not working, you tend to be more rigid, more judgmental. There's a lot of good, bad thinking, there's linear thinking polarizations, while if this is reset and you're reconnected, you tend to think more holistically, more appreciative of the seasons, not just in nature, but also how things work within yourself in a cyclical way, how out of pain can come new growth and so on and so forth. So I go down the list with each of the elements and the sources of power. So air would be you're more anxious, you need to vent more, you may be gaslit and smoke screened and your mind is foggy, right? Using some of these same analogies that you see on the planet when things are imbalanced. And then when you balance, you're more clear thinker, you're fresh ideas, you're more imaginative, inspired, spacious, and so on and so forth. Breath is healthier. So that is just another metaphor that I wanted to offer. And curious, I hope that that lands well, especially for concrete thinkers who like more tangible examples, that this could bring it home, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was wonderful that, that you explained that. Could you talk a bit more about the tree in this equation? Mm -hmm. So I really consider the tree, as I said, as a grounding rod. And another metaphor, I, I talked a little bit about how important it is to rest your head against the tree. But when I teach people how to enter the sanctuary, and I also point that out in the book, you really want to open up your five senses and use your physical body as much as possible to enter this grounded place that you really imagine that you're entering a place that you can relate to that really exists on the planet. And that really connects us. As I said, we, we can jump right up and there's some space between us and the planet making us really think we're separate and not a direct product, so to speak, as much as any other plant and being on the planet. So that when we enter the sanctuary, you really want to cultivate that understanding and deepening that connection. And your central tree guide represents that. It's all-encompassing. And for example, all the little leaves represent parts of yourself that are connected to your being. And you can think of it as 
perhaps parts of yourself that were splintered off or you can think of it as you know sort of this ancestral tree and all the different parts that influence you you can also think of it as the parts that are constantly in flux and you have new leaves growing and leaves falling off things that you can see and and leaves that are hidden and you can't see and all of these are absorbing energy and connecting you to the above the roots are connecting you to the below and the reason I set up the structure of entering in a, in a very grounded way and then having you sit up straight as you entered your sanctuary and preferably lean against a wall or a chair is to really invoke that physical sensation of resting, of surrendering and imagining you're resting against that tree and the tree having your back. It's also to activate your backbone, to really like imagine just as that energy moves through the tree trunk, it moving through your chakra channel and your spine. And another metaphor that I use is the idea of your tree having rings. And let's say your tree was damaged. Those rings and the bark are protecting the tree. So if the injury, the damage didn't penetrate and hurt the tree, the tree actually would push that out and the injury, the damage would grow back on the bark and the inner circles and rings would be intact and all the nourishment that is flowing from the roots and the and the top would continue to flow through the trunk of the tree. So I have people also imagine that in their own bodies because sometimes what happens because their ego mind is so powerful, the memories of what happened to the inner rings make it feel like the inner or inner self is still damaged. While it's not, we outgrew it. It's physically now on the outside and the inner rings are new rings and we heal and we replenish ourselves and if we're still alive, we survive that and are intact enough inside to nourish ourselves energetically. So I use the tree for that reason also to really clear the chakra channel to have us understand that energetically we're untouched and whole inside and to really think of the imprints and the damage done by society, especially if we're sensitive people and tend to have thinner skin, you know, to really remind ourselves that is external to us. And as it's external to us, you can set limits with that. You can decide how you're going to heal or transform or do whatever you still need to do with the energetic imprints, the memories of it. But it's very important to know that in the present moment, you're not that, even if it feels like that. So that's the meaning of the tree trunk. And as you lean down against that, you feel yourself energized, become more courageous and it's key for your head to lean against a tree because it's like our thinking or ego minds are like a pool of water. If we're not connected to streaming water, to flowing water, things can easily fester. doesn't matter if it's organic or, you know, our organic thoughts and human and whatever you want to call that. It needs to flow. It needs to be connected to a greater integrated system. So us leaning our heads back and surrendering to that mystery and that wisdom is, is already often all that needs to happen for a person in great distress to see me and just meditate ground, do this part, and things already start shifting. They already start flowing. Thoughts already start changing and morphing into more spacious, interconnected ways. And then especially when you open the crown chakra to get more inspiration. And then once you're filled up and you're nourished, then your ego mind 
your frontal lobes get to execute, get to decide what to do with that information rather than take charge and be the captain of this ship, so to speak, but have no idea where you're going. So this is what I call grounding. When you introduce the idea of grounding to people, they're often like, what What exactly does that mean? It is a very complicated concept. It took me forever. As a writer, I finally learned it to ground things in a scene, to really think of a scene. But I'm taking it a step further and really grounding the body and ourselves back into our true nature, connecting us to nature and using the tree guide and the elements to really light up and activate that power inside of us. So you mentioned opening up our crown chakra to inspiration from above. You also have us in that tree guide meditation, open up our base chakra to actually metaphorically, well, act, metaphorically and directly um, connect ourselves and root ourselves and ground ourselves to the earth mm -hmm. in alignment with the tree. And we have the tree there. And as I was doing that meditation, I, I really had this visceral sense that the tree was part of my back, that I, I had the strength of that tree as part of me or, you know, as available to me. That's beautiful. Yeah, some people merge completely with the tree at times. They experience their arms, their fingertips, even this whole elaborate canopy antenna above their heads. They feel that extension. I mean, it is said that we use only 5-10% of our brain power, right? And that, you know, our mind is not even just located in our brains, in our cerebral cortex there, but inside the cells and parts of the body and who knows even, right? Like beyond the physical limitations of the body. So I have people, you know, feel like they grow and expand beyond their skin and can really relate to the tree, embody it and really experience all of that energy coming through the crown, coming through their fingertips if they, you know, raised their hands and arms out to the sky and, and really feel the roots from the bottom of their feet and their base chakra. And I've done that many times myself. And it's an incredible feeling, an incredible shift. I have people with severe PTSD come to my office and sometimes be so shaken up, they can't even sit still or really relay anything that has happened, you know, and if they're up for it, this takes a lot of grounding on my part. I won't just recommend it to anybody who doesn't really quite know how to do it because you can get in places of the trauma and the scary places. But I trust my guides when they give me the green light to go ahead and do it. So I've done it with people and it has completely shifted their energy and calmed them down, completely experienced kind of what you just experienced and it was probably years or months since they felt that calm and grounded the last time so it's a very very powerful way of reconnecting to ourselves and i have done it so many times so i can hold this very powerfully but as i said sometimes it's still not a good idea to do it with people who've been so tormented and the shadow parts or the scary parts and their ego mind contract with those parts is so strong that you cannot sever that. So again, you know, use caution. But if you feel like it's a good idea or somebody who is, for example, 
not so shaken up. It's also fun, for example, to lean against somebody else back to back. And you do this together, you both experience it, and you also both kind of experience each other and enjoying the meditation together. I also sit in circles with people or my clients, right? We just kind of sit face to face doing this. And you definitely benefit from the energy from other people's work doing it. It amplifies it and it's it's a beautiful experience. Mm -hmm. So you have a series of these guided meditations and the last two pertain to our heart compass and the last one is our true north direction. And I would love for you to talk about relearning to feel into and to follow our heart compass and then our true north direction, particularly considering that we're living in a highly trauma-filled world and also why doing that can be so challenging. Yeah, that's a good question. Not only challenging, but then also helpful. So as I mentioned earlier, we have a trauma body and a truth body. And the way I picture the trauma body are actually trauma bubbles is that they're fleeting bubbles. They're trauma bubbles of short-circuited parts of ourselves, soul parts of ourselves that happened in our childhood or sometimes, you know, people also believe, claim, and get bleed-throughs that it related to past lives or ancestor parts or whatnot. doesn't really matter where these parts come from. What they do is they occupy your body, almost like they find that crack where there was some shutdown in your vessel, in your home, and they kind of lock in and they get triggered. And they do that to alert you of the problem. But if we don't know that this is an alert or how to deal with the problem, we won't even notice it. We just think we're this complicated person. Or sometimes we do say it felt like the bottom fell out from under us. I'm slipping. I'm spiraling down. I don't know what's happening. Or I just feel like something came over me, right? We, we don't really catch when we're in the truth body and the trauma body. So I often tell people, just because you're familiar with yourself, that doesn't mean that that familiar self has been your truest, most aligned, most online self. And I highly recommend for people to check in and enter the sanctuary as often as possible, but especially when making very important decisions. And this is where the heart compass comes into play. Important decisions maybe in terms of relationship or when you're maybe about to deal with a particular conflict or have a difficult conversation or make a career change or any of those life changes. But even the day-to-day you know, the more we go into the sanctuary, the more we take aligned actions instead of blind actions. So all the meditation up to the heart compass are the steps to take to make sure your compass, because these four elements are structured in the cardinal directions, right? So the tree is above, below, and then air is in front of you, helping you face your highest truth, the big picture, to the right is fire where the sun comes up, to the back is earth, so we're leaning against that tree, and to the left is the opposite of fire is water, and you can associate that with the moon cycles and flow and circulation and so on and so forth, right? So not until your ego mind is plugged into and aligned with these four cardinal directions can you really trust your heart compass, 
because you don't know what's coming through. And it could be like this protective, fearful part that I mentioned. So for that reason, it's super important to connect to your heart compass, just to live a more aligned, a more empowered life. Now, what I also talk about is self-love. We tend to think of love kind of as maybe a rosy warm cloud that like comes over us and we feel love and warm and fuzzy. I think of love as a much more gritty thing, like an action verb. The love is the composting of all that trauma within yourself and outside of yourself. So just to love ourselves is not just, oh, well, let me remember the times when I was loved by a parent or somebody, a lover, and that felt so great. Yeah, that could be a guiding feeling, but you want to take it deeper. What was that all about? It was probably filling in some parts in yourself that were dormant or not seen and activated. And instead of giving that power to whoever you believe loved you and probably did, take it further and say, where is that feeling without that person? Can I love and see myself in that way? What part was celebrated or activated? And why is that normally not online, right? And so then you go to your circles and you work with each of the elements to shine light on that, to find out more. Why is it not activated? Maybe you need to work with fire to compost with transformational heat, you know, put some boundaries in place and differentiate yourself from whoever mistreated you and then you can ground that right so this is the practice of self-love and it starts with yourself the inner circles and the circles that influence you where you go through the family of origin circle maybe school friends neighborhood and also your current family lovers and so on and so forth so once you now have work through these layers within your own sanctuary, you're much more energized, you're much more online and powerful. But it doesn't stop there because so much of our self-love of ourself is connected to the greater self, the collective. And especially us empaths, we understand the smaller self and the bigger self. We enter most systems kind of tune in to the larger system and feel right away what's off and try to use ourselves, our bodies to correct that. And that's great, but we need to stay connected to our smaller ecosystem to really read what is going on. So this is a natural process that every human is called to do. And based on your own karmic oppressive patterns, you're going to come up with a dharmic path, a liberation path, a path of truth that not compensates, but, you know, is sort of the call to compost, the call to really metabolize whatever hasn't been metabolized within yourself due to your own life experiences, due to ancestor patterns. So this is how our sole purpose, our missions in life, and our social obligation to the collective and to help heal and transform society comes into play. And the nice thing is, as complex and as big and sometimes daunting as this sounds, if you start small and if you start with your own soul sanctuary and do your own healing work, you don't need to necessarily change anything, change your tune. You just continue that same practice and you're naturally going to expand out. 
Now, there is something else to take into account, especially when it involves not just memories of the past and how you're restructuring your experiences and, and retrieving your energy and soul parts. This might involve more confrontation. We can do this healing with parents and confronting them and having conversations, or we can do this healing when they're no longer here with us and already passed on, or we don't feel safe to confront them. That healing is possible. Now, when it comes to, you know, expanding our soul purpose and doing work in the world, we can't necessarily do that. It does require some confrontation and looking at oppressive patterns and some area that is a trigger for us or that we feel pulled to address and confront. And so it is important for us to kind of up the ante and know we're going to get pushed back and know that we're also going to get tested because this is going to be in the hard and scary places that we've had trouble with our whole lives and who knows how many lifetimes. But as you get stronger and you have more tools, you're also going to be very equipped to handle this and you're going to be very enticed to test yourself and and see yourself get stronger and rise up as you go right into these challenging and oppressive patterns. And the work that we accomplish within ourselves in this way also greatly contributes to the world around us. For sure. And it continues to be a parallel and multi-dimension and complex process where I call it at every level a new devil. It's not just my term. I've heard it from other mentors being used. But what that means is, let's say you're avoidant, or let's say any number of issues. Let's say maybe the opposite. You're a bit easily set off and belligerent at times because of your childhood experiences. Let's say you had a rageful parent and because of that, you shut down easily or maybe a sibling did the opposite, learn exactly what the parent did and shouted and was very pushy and angry and forceful in getting their way. Now, as you learn to heal that and get better with that, it's not only going to involve the players in the family dynamic, but you're also going to see these patterns play out in all your relationships so it could be work or intimate relationships or friendships. And as you grow and heal yourself, what is going to happen is you're going to see improvements in those other circles, but there's continuously going to be an interplay where they're going to push exactly those buttons, somebody in one of the circles to bring you back to another nuanced area in your childhood or wherever where that same thing happened and you didn't really take that angle into account or something like that. So that's what we mean with every level new devil because through your growth and through your expansion, you get to work more on yourself. You get to understand more of how you were impacted by the initial trauma and also by healing that initial trauma, you're also going to feel more empowered and feel more inspired to want to help others out there dealing with that same problem. So that's what I mean with it's going to continuously be an interdependent growth process and a parallel process where it's never like, okay, so now we're done with the family of origin stuff. Now we're done with the friends and now we're going to expand out. It's not quite like that. You, you do feel more ready 
it's kind of like I guess building maybe a skyscraper or high building where certain pillars and structural foundational aspects walls are up you feel ready to maybe build the next level it's not completely done it's not filled out the walls are not filled you don't you don't have it furnished or decorated but you're ready to move on to the next level it's kind of like that and then you go back to previous levels and fill that out more and more Mm -hmm. yeah our life journey is never ending or it it continues until the end of of this life (laughs) Mm -hmm. yes for sure always growing and always healing the impacts of life experience and retrieving parts of ourselves that may get splintered off in moments. But as we progress along the way, that process occurs much quicker and we are much more aware of what's happening as it's happening. Yes. And I wanted just to add another metaphor because an advanced student of mine called me out and said, I don't know if the skyscraper metaphor makes sense. (laughs) It makes sense to some degree, but I agree with her. You know, it's also important to not just see yourselves in such, I guess, modern, concrete, separate, sort of non-alive ways. She sees us more as a redwood, a mature one, and how we grow in circles and support one another at the root level and underground and in very mysterious ways. So we're not as vulnerable as, you know, a skyscraper would be if the foundation is off. Because sometimes I use that metaphor, so, you know, the idea of the more power you have, the more responsibility, the taller you grow or more called to be, the more, you know, any slants in the foundation or issues will have a greater impact on you and can bring the whole thing crashing down, which there's some truth to that. But we can also think of ourselves as, you know, the circle of redwoods. And when you do use that resource, what I found for myself too, not that there's more forgiveness, but you are not trying to do everything on your own and you reach out for help and you receive help from other people who are doing similar, important, powerful work. And we can support one another that way. And there's a little bit more grace when we do things that way. We feel a little bit sturdier and not just, you know, by standing our own ground, but also leaning against others. Right. In nature, especially amongst trees, they form communities and they actually communicate through their root systems and through their own pheromones. And we do that too. It's just that we're taught by our culture that we're separate islands unto ourselves and that we have to take care of ourselves and and do everything on our own and even though we we live in communities, we don't really deeply get what that truly means and, and what's really possible. Yeah, for sure. I like this system working with nature guides because people from any religion can learn how to do this without it feeling like it interferes. And why I'm bringing up religion, I remember hearing about this. I'm also multi-religious, grew up Catholic, but it wasn't very rigid exposure to the religion as some other people may have had in their childhoods. But in, in any event, this phrasing stands out to me right now where I remember a Christian teacher saying to somebody, Jesus was always there for you, shining light, loving you. It was you who had turned your back to him. 
So I feel like there's a similar analogy when you work with your tree guide. Like we know the sun has always been shining on us. We know that the sun will come up each and every day. We know the earth is the only thing that has fed us. She's been the only one providing us, but we are the ones who turned our back or shut that down or treat ourselves as islands and are not open to all of this support and guidance and you might think well me just thinking if I'm hungry and I'm out of a job me thinking the sun and the earth feeding me is not really going to put food on my table or help me in my situation that is true but also shutting that off is not going to help your situation it might actually help you way more than you realize by open up to that guidance and that mystery and that love to figure out your worth and who might be there to help you and how to best find a job or get yourself out of the predicament. Not opening up yourself to that kind of love and energy is for sure not going to help your situation. Many of us think, yeah, it's going to help us buckle down and feel more afraid and more worried and try that and, and test that out. See how scenario A compares to scenario B. So I do a lot of that myself because we're cognitive, rational people. And I also catered to the ego mind. I have to partner with people's ego minds. So whatever they need for some logical proof, you know, to see that this is not just woo-woo and all that airy-fairy talk. Let's do a logical experiment. I've been a researcher, so I can easily set up <laughs> an experiment for you. And then you gather the data and come back and let me know. So yeah, from all fronts, I think it's time for the ego mind to stop wanting to outsmart mystery, stop wanting to outsmart wisdom, and be more humble, more earth-like, more humility, and use your smarts to learn, get more data, see really how the world works, how you work, and how to align yourself with all that's available for us, the greatest power, love, wisdom, and ways of connecting and healing ourselves and others. Mm. I would love for you to talk about what you call spiritual composting and the kind of work that we need to do within ourselves to get to a more connected place within ourselves and with the earth and our essential nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd love that. So using the same elements especially if you're an intuitive thinker, this can really help. So we are more air-like, we're more mental. You see that with a lot of anxiety, a lot of anxious, ruminating thoughts. Sometimes also, it could maybe not necessarily be negative, but it's not grounded. It's maybe a lot of visions, being a visionary, having great ideas, inspiring ideas, but not bringing it enough to earth. And we need to bring things to earth or they call it ripening of karma, problems need to fall down to earth to be composted, right? The, the ripened fruit, the excess stuff, the leaves, all of that ripens and falls down to the earth and then rots and compost nourishes the earth again. So we shortchange this process a lot. As ego-minded people, we probably needed to do that to survive. It probably wasn't even possible to be imbalanced in the air department and the fire department as fire animals. As I said before, the only sentient creatures who know how to make fire and use it and also abuse it. But because of that and because of the mess we made 
with that, we can also learn and correct that. So what needs to happen to get to earth, it's not possible to just drop into the body and sustain that and stay there. And that's why my sanctuary is set up this way. You need to first go through fire. You need to first muster more courage, more burning through some of the misaligned patterns, trusting your inner heat and inner fever to get stronger and healthier and get your immunity up before you're going to be able to sustain being on the earth. And once you then in the body have that audacity, have that willingness, another phrase that might help is it's not light that transforms, it's heat. So it's not just a seeing and being of love and light and all that positivity that could become a little bit of a toxic positivity or what they call spiritual bypassing if you don't use your anger and your heat to really be clear of where you stand to help you stand in what you believe. Once you do that, you're willing to do that, then you can relax. Your body will relax and feel stronger, healthier, just like your own body does when it comes to physical stuff. If you got infected by some kind of pathogen, it's not till the fever did its work that you're going to relax and really rest. So when you then are in the body, that's when you truly are going to be able to feel what's happening. You're going to have different information than your mind does, even your intuitive mind. Without your body and being grounded in the body, you're getting a lopsided distorted kind of image. You don't have access to what needs to be composted, that deeper pain, that mushiness, that often messy, smelly, wormy, all the stuff we don't like or think are gross and distasteful, right? You're going to have now more tolerance for that. You're more open to that. It's also kind of what I call in my book too a lot where the caterpillar becomes the butterfly, right? You really got to do something completely different where, you know, all that you've done up to that point is become a longer, stronger caterpillar. And now you got to completely curl into yourself, go into this chrysalis, disintegrate completely and trust your body that it knows what to do. And it's the complete opposite of everything you've done. So a lot of us, especially in this culture, this go, 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 young, kind of masculine, um, driven, thrusting forward, like, right, intense, linear, all of that. We don't know how to do that. We don't know how to surrender, pull back, retreat, and go into this cycle. But that's what happens in the spiritual composting aspect. We go underground, we go kind of like winter, hibernation, going deep into that darkness, and then things disintegrate, and you're just being still and watching and letting those things happen, letting yourself cry in a whole new way, because we can do a lot of crying that is kind of at the flooded level. Again, just a flash flood going way fast over the earth and not seeping in and not doing the deeper work, and the earth is kind of dead, right? It's It just hasn't been nourished. It doesn't have all the healthy organisms or that treatment and hasn't had it for a long time. So it really takes a lot of care to understand what we're doing with ourselves and bringing ourselves back to life through this process. And it, it's a slow and painful process. I recommend for my book, The Biggest Little Farm. I highly recommend watching that. It's a great little documentary of how two people, a couple, 
brought a farm back to life. A farm where the land was completely barren and arid and it's now a glorious, thriving little farm with hundreds of different fruit trees and vegetables. So that is a similar metaphor. We need to slowly bring ourselves back to life before we can even do that composting. I love the story of the big little farm. Mm-hmm. And I was considering having you talk more about that, but I think you've already pretty much laid out the spiritual composting process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'll mention one thing what really, really amazed me and why expanding out and doing things is so key to our learning. But talk about equanimity and the tree. I remember, especially the first seven, eight years, when they're introducing crops one by one, different animals, different things, and each and every time so tested, so pushed to the limits. For example, I don't know if I want to, spoiler alert, I'll say, Um, but towards the end, the climax, right, where where they had the coyote come and get their chickens, how tempted the male farmer was and almost shot one and then again relinquished, surrendered and didn't and allowed nature to naturally balance these imbalances, these threats as they done with all the other big hazards and threats to their farm, their crops and just one by one introduce more and more diversity till in the end it, it was able to maintain itself. So that was just remarkable. And I I just loved how the pendulum swung from one extreme to the other as they went through that journey till it became less and less and less. And I do see that happening the same with us humans. At first, it's going to be very, very challenging and really test us. And the triggers are very extreme. And we will feel such intense, knee-jerk, like impulses wanting to be reactive and do exactly the opposite. And then really to think of equanimity and the tree and understanding that for us to grow higher, like for a tree to go bigger, higher, the roots need to go deeper, need to go in that mucky, icky, damp soil and do that work there or we're not going to be able to hold ourselves up. So that's what I want to leave people with. You cannot just work on one end. You really, it's not the same as, I guess, you know, burning your candles on both ends. This is the exact opposite. (laughs) You got to grow on both ends to be able to be healthy and whole. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking about the challenges that they experienced on the big little farm with the natural cycles of animals that naturally occur and the knee-jerk impulse to want to try and control it from our own narrow perspective, our ego perspective. And it made me think of the challenge that many of us are, are experiencing in the political realm in this country, where part of our political system is actually preventing us from moving forward in ways that many of us know is essential at this point. In fact, we're at this very critical point of existential crisis on the planet, and many of us are feeling like we're being held back by a large group of people that are unwilling to acknowledge the need to take responsible action in those ways. And many of us are having these knee-jerk inner responses to that, and some are having outer knee-jerk responses to that. And I just, while you were talking about that, I was just thinking like, how 
how would you talk about the approach to dealing with that that conflict that we experience within ourselves in relation to what's happening in the world around us? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I grapple with and steep in a lot. As I said, I'm in Berkeley and guide a lot of activists and people who sometimes see themselves as radical as other people see them as radical. I myself, I would say, I practice radical self-acceptance and acceptance that is maybe slightly different than how I used to be in the past where I was quite outspoken, radical, wanting change to happen and saw it only one way. Now I see it much more nuanced and that is with continued practice with my ear element to really see the long view and believe me, my ego was not (laughs) happy about that. But long view, we're talking like when you're now incorporating the Mayan calendar, Toltec calendar, some of these very ancient, you know, maybe you're even thinking ages, the age of Aquarius, for example, we're talking thousands of year cycles, not as we tend to think in our bodies as I did, I have a mission, and by the end of my life, not only do I want to be completed or feel completed in my mission, I want the world to reflect (laughs) the work I've done. And somehow, we don't, you know, question this more fully. We are driven by this unconscious hope, motivation, idea that our best efforts will just ripple out into the world, and the world will reflect that. And of course, now that I'm entering mid-age and also working with many people with, you know, similar unconscious, you know, assumptions, we're seeing this more and more clearly how important it is to be double-minded in this regard also. You really need to know your own life's trajectory, your own callings, your unfinished business, what you're here to do, and do that. And also have a very clear idea. This is what I actually call now the radical acceptance. Radically accept where the world is, our country is, where things are in their cycles of composting, not just clump it all together and extrapolate over generalize of my own composting is parallel to what the world is. No, it's completely different. And the world is not just one world. We're talking about many, many different dimensions, many different countries, cultures, and they're each in their cycles of composting, as is your own family, your own community, your own school. So when you see that in more complex ways, you're not gonna just expect to magically get the wheels turning on every single one. And not only that, I was able to go deeper and challenge myself. There is an aspect of sort of this God complex grandiosity where we want to heal, we want to help others, but you're kind of robbing that from people when you're wanting all of that to just happen because you're doing it. How about their work? Not, Not, you know, for fairness, like, oh, everybody needs to do their own share. I don't even see my work kind of like that as a burden. I see that work as a gift. I see it as the opportunity for me to compost and grow. And so why would I take that away from people prematurely or while they're in the midst of doing it because of my own projections that they can't stand it or they're having whatever thing I'm thinking, right? That is my own story. That's my own reality. When I was going through very severe loss and trauma and all of that, I appreciated people, of course, caring and wanting to know more. But 
I was very wise. I I knew that this was happening for a reason and it was half-baked. I didn't know what and how and what it would become. Now I do. But I think I would have known even then if somebody tried to rescue me out of it or somehow not wanting me to feel and experience whatever I was feeling because that was mine. That was my energy, my compost. So why would you want to take that away from me? So as a therapist and a healer and somebody who, you know, can see people in their most severe distress, I understand that I'm not like most people, you know, very comfortable with that and very supportive of their process and and hands off. Most people, especially when you're dealing with loved ones, kids, teens, your own children, lovers, you know, parents, it's hard for us to see them suffering that way. But I think what I mentioned before, to really think of that loving kindness that you send them as activating their fullest potential, their highest self, their ability to work with the tree, the elements, these parts of themselves to get unstuck and get all their grief cycles and healing cycles going. That is now what I would say, wish that for people and upon people and then give them all the support and space they need to do that. Now, to answer your question directly, um, it's sometimes hard to feel that way towards politicians. Maybe not sometimes. It's often. It's maybe all the time. (laughs) Very hard because we tend to, in our world, what you're seeing right now, maybe a very small percentage of people who are severely disturbed, narcissistic, psychotic, power hungry, very, very dangerous and harmful. But as we're seeing today with the wars and stuff, they could have a lot of power and do a lot of damage to a lot of people. So it's really, really hard to be hands off. And that is not the only answer. We are, like I said, needing to be in the deep now and in the deep mess. But I think because of us able to see so many things all at once, what's happening all over the world in ways we did not and could not in the past, it's really overwhelming for us very sensitive people. And it activates that bigger self you know, and the parts of us that wants to harmonize and heal each and every cycle and circle and distress all around us to feel good about ourselves, to feel better, to feel safe. And while that makes total sense, we need to, again, compare sort of menu A versus menu B. If we do all those things on menu A, we're going to feel so out of our soul authority, so disempowered and helpless and in despair because there's absolutely nothing good that you're going to be doing with your energy. So what to do instead is to, first of all, take very good care of yourself. Know that that is your soul responsibility and that you can completely do that and it's untouchable and it is of the essence if you want to make a difference in the world. Then second, what you're going to do is look at all the circles, your immediate circles, expansive circles, and figure out where you are most needed and also where you can make the greatest impact. You're going to make a smart decision how to use your energy wisely. It's important to stay informed, but it's also important to also decide how does this information impacting you, like you're feeding on this energy. 
So if you're watching news 24-7 or whatever's happening, right? Like how is this added information benefiting you? What are you doing with it? Or is it feeding some kind of downward spiral of despair and helplessness, right? You, you need to be very conscious what information you need, what cycle it's feeding, where you're making a difference, where you're moving this composting cycle in a positive way, where you're helping it to get unstuck. And sometimes I would love to, you know, be able to make a difference, for example, to the people in Ukraine and stop something there, but that is really not in my power, but I can break that down and figure out where can I make a difference? Is it around understanding war or splitting or scapegoating? Or is it people from Ukraine or refugees who are here? Or is it attitudes around war or in a ball that could reach people internationally, right? I have to think of where can I make a difference? And where's that going to make a difference? Talking to you on a radio show about this, right? So that is going to, in the end, make me feel good about my energy, my power, what I've done, my soul authority, what's in my power, and still radically accept and be at some level of peace with the messes still in the world and be at peace also. I had to work towards that fast forward to the end of my life and really see that. I'll be dying while there are going to be extreme messes, who knows, maybe even worse, as the ripening of karma is happening, right? And, and when you look at these bigger cycles, this is the time, the Taltic calendar, so many other places where these great transformations are happening. But just like the cycles and the seasons and the composting cycle, nothing new can happen till you have a huge breakdown of things. So this is kind of what it looks like. And I don't think it's by the end of my life going to be ending. It's probably going to be at least a few decades, maybe hundreds, hundreds of years more before you're going to really see some significant changes. So that long view helps me with my knee-jerk reactions and helps me take a break in my day to have fun, to, to do other things. Otherwise, I'd be 24-7 in despair till the day I die. Mm -hmm. So being able to firmly have one foot in that deep now of our essential nature and that experience as well as having our other worldly foot in this incredible mess that we're we're living in. Yeah, and I would say a little bit more complex even, like where these two come together is your path, your dharmic path. That means your soul purpose path, your walk of truth, where you have to carve that out so that there are different trajectories to it. As I said, you can have a trajectory of by the end of your life with what you want to have accomplished. I thought at first my memoir is the only thing that really mattered once that is out, but clearly I needed to get the second book out. Now I feel very fulfilled, like I can die now, but who knows, maybe in, in 10 years <laughs> there's another book or something else that needs to come out. But this is what I mean. You got to have some sense of your unfinished business and things you want to do in your lifetime as these forces come together and continuously stay focused and work on that. But that is a long-term goal. That's kind of like writing a dissertation for a lot of people. It's hard to stay focused on such a long-term goal. So you got to have daily goals too and how to stay in balance, how to think of your life, your body as this ecosystem and, and how to be in balance. So for example, if you're thinking now in terms of air and earth or fire 
and water, I can orchestrate my day also using those elements. So earth, of course, it would be more like the sluggish, the rest, the grounding, right? And air could be a little bit more of that whimsical, inspirational stuff. I also use a metaphor where I see our heart center as the sacred fire in the center. It connects to the fire of the sun and and fire in the center of the earth. So we're responsible for that sacred fire and maintaining it and sustaining it. So if you're now stuck in the woods or somewhere and you have a fire, you're going to guard that fire with your life because it's very hard to make fire, right? So you're going to make sure that air doesn't blow it out. You're also going to make sure it has oxygen to keep going. Nothing snuffs it. You're going to also make sure you have enough firewood or things to keep it going, ready to go. You're going to make sure it's not too wet, but also that it's not too dry around your shelter so that, you know, goes ablaze while you're sleeping or something like that, right? So it's kind of like that. So how do you sustain your own fire too? That's one foot in wholeness in that sanctuary. So it requires work. It requires active maintaining, sustaining this. So in terms of the firewoods, that would be activities. What are you actually doing? Not just resting, but the aligned action steps, the alchemy action steps that, you know, get your juices, your passion, your fire going and keep you in the flow, so to speak, and thinking of water. Make sure your emotions are always clean, you cleanse them, you nourish, and nothing stays blocked or stagnant. So that would be things you'll be doing on a daily basis to keep your energy in movement intact and healing and constantly flowing and cycling through you. And then you bring that almost as a tuning fork to the world and see where the world and these systems are stuck. And then your guides, your nature guides will tell you how and what will help with movement. Maybe it is being a little fiercer and speaking up against something that is wrong in the system, or maybe it is introducing some fun activity or some creative outlet or whatever it might be. That's how your creative juices will allow you to then contribute. And that is just in your presence, but it could also be a big project that you're doing or a book you're writing or something else where it's a more concentrated effort that you're making to make a big change. Or it could be daily as you're helping people from day to day and, and so on. So that is how to actually have one foot in your wholeness and one foot in the mess, but actually bring it into like a path for yourself that gives you a focal point from day to day. Mm -hmm. That was wonderful. I'm so grateful that you shared all of that. In relation to connecting with our guides and listening to our guides, how do you help people connect to their guides, particularly for those who feel like they don't know how to do it, or, or maybe they have a feeling like they can't do that, that it's something outside of their realm of possibility? Yeah, that's another great question. And the reason why I work with the elemental guides and the sanctuary, because it seemed too big of a leap or gap sometimes to go into a trance state and help people connect to an animal guide or some other mythical or archetypal or other kind of guides, because their ego mind would get so overactive and immediately feel scared often and anxious, I can't do this, and so on. So if you follow the instructions, 
and go into the sanctuary step by step and use what I call more of your directive mind. Okay, let me back up a little bit. So some of the polarizations being directive are receptive in your circular. And so another imbalance that we are often not aware of in our culture is how directive we are right? And so when we're then finally getting into a receptive place where you're trying to reflect and sort of download information, your your mind is open to guidance, what often happens is that all the unprocessed, undigested trauma just bombards them, overwhelms them, you know, like forces itself in because it's been often repressed for so long. So this is why I sometimes would run into trouble jumping in and doing the shamanic journeys and going there because first of all, it could lead to very hairy, scary places or the ego mind would know that this would happen and would block that and say, I can't or, you know, feel some kind of weird block and they don't know what is going on. So the sanctuary is almost like a triage space. It's where you're now more in control, understanding what's happening. Your ego mind is creating this safe healing place where it can then surrender and become more receptive. So what I found out is when people do that, they have much less trouble connecting to the guides because you're slowly easing in. You're directing your mind to now use guided visualizations and you're entering the space using your inner five senses and your it's very safe because you're not doing any big healing work or opening yourself up to anything, being open-ended and ending up maybe free-falling into who knows where. You're now deliberately going to a very safe and grounded place in the in-between places where all this potential lies, right? This liminal place. And you're very grounded there. And also how to think of the tree When you're first learning to sit there and connect to this grounding rod, I see it as decharging the overcharged whatever traumatic events. Because how to think of emotions and trauma, there's two aspects to it. One has the consciousness, the message, the information of what needs to be healed or realigned. And the other one holds intensity. We tend to think of rage or despair or so many feelings as they always have to be intense. No, they don't always have to be intense. I can feel rage and be just as calm as I am now or sitting with clients. That's one of my gifts. I'm empathic so I can feel what's going on in their bodies. So the reason why some of these feelings are very intense is because they've been so repressed and so they come back with a vengeance. So I'm kind of almost like an emotional surrogate, so to speak. I help them birth these feelings and help bring them back online. So when you now say, hey, I'm no longer going to ignore you. I have all the spaciousness for you. You don't need to scream. You don't need to be worried. I am going to listen to you. It's fine to decharge. You can start decharging and get all the intensity out. And when you don't do that, you're so afraid, frantic, you come at me with so much intensity. Even if I want to hear you, I can't. I short circuit again. I'm so overwhelmed. So it's not meeting your needs either. You say this to the younger self or to the intense feelings. And if you now decharge and calm down ground with me so that we can slowly unpack and more carefully unpack 
whatever happened, it already happened, it's in the past, it's not threatening you right now, we're making time and space to deal with it, you're going to get all of that information in a much more digestible, calm way. So when my clients, you know, learn how to do this, this takes all the blocks out of the ego mind, all the blocks that tend to stand in the way between them and their guidance. So their mind opens, they relax, and in that relaxed state, they feel safe to expand, they even become curious. Instead of me asking or telling them now, go do journey, they want to know more. They want to open that door. They're marveled by how much guidance and insight and wisdom lives in their own bodies. They ground more and more comes up, right? And, and this is all about the heart compass being aligned the heart compass naturally would bring you to all those places. And if it doesn't, it's probably because it's not fully aligned and too much trauma energy is sitting at the seat of your soul, so to speak, at that throne is having that soul authority. So I also honor that. If they can't, I know there's something to be shifted and done so their wisdom and their soul is the one in charge. Thank you for going into such depth to answer that question. You're welcome. I'm glad that's helpful. There was one question I was curious about. You have a, a mantra that you talk about where you say, you can kill me, but I will not die. I wonder if there's particular significance or importance that that has for you. Yes, I love that quote. And the best way to understand that quote and how that made sense to me has to do with something I write about in my memoir. And it took me a bit to unpack all the layers. But apparently, I had a near-death experience in a past life right before being killed. I'm not going to say more and spoil what happened for those who are interested in reading my memoir, Amazon Wisdom Keeper. But in any event, starting in my childhood, and what inspired this very precocious early double-mindedness had to do with being able to transcend my lived experience, my little body, which is difficult to do as a child. You're so dependent on your parents and the way they do reality and the power they exert over you often right? Manipulating by letting you know, unless you do things their ways, you are at risk of not belonging and not being attached. So the fact that I could run to the rainforest and basically say, screw you, do whatever, right? It's not just because there was a rainforest there, but because I was probably tapping into being persecuted, being killed, and transcending, knowing that I was beyond my physical experience. So that theme came up a lot. Also, when I was struggling as a psychologist and was afraid, I, this is how I then phrased it in my head, that the things I were doing were so unsound, so irresponsible. It was almost like professional suicide. So that's interesting, again, where I'm wanting to kill this ego part of myself and when I say professional suicide, I was really toying with the idea knowing that what my profession wanted me to do 
would keep me alive, but it wasn't what I wanted to keep alive. So eventually I chose for the professional suicide. I didn't know how things would turn out, but I would basically say, screw it, I'm going to do it. Anyway, I don't care what happens. This is my sole authority, right? This is what matters to me. So how that relates to the mantra that came through, you can kill me, but I won't die, is very meaningful to me. It also relates to what I then formally learned to do, and you may also do this or have learned this, and many other mystics, not just shamanic practitioners, but you learn to do a dismemberment, which is an intentional ego death, where you work with animal guides and, you know, maggots talk about composting, could be eating your physical body or vultures could be, you know, tearing your flesh out or a tiger lion or whatever would be eating you. And in this shamanic journey, your attachments to the physical body are being challenged. And through that experience of terror, existential angst and all of that, you are reborn again you discover that you're more than that. Well, I discovered that and I knew that as a child over and over again, but of course didn't know that I was operating from this place, from a very wise place, as you would say, a grandparent, an older person, or a person who's terminally ill learns that, right? Or might have an early near-death experience and suddenly sees the light and understands how much he, she, they were held back by fear of dying and fear of living. So I was already fully pushing against that boundary and not understanding what the blocks were, why other people weren't living that way, why so many ego hangups and fears were holding them up or not allowing them to fully experience all their emotions because they were over-identifying with that energy and not experiencing the ego death. So I adopted some of these things, especially the very hairy, scary ones, and especially the ones that pushed me to expand more and more, where I even also had visions, where it's like, if I do more of this, I'm going to become more visible. I'm going to become more of a target, and dark energies are going to find me. And this would bring up my past life stuff of persecution and especially of of hurting those around me. Even if I then had the near death and could become light and kind of did this na na na, you you can't hurt me. I saw the people around me being hurt. So that is my karmic unfinished business. That's what I needed to work through. And interestingly enough, when the ancestors came through the first time, and I wrote the memoir, it was sort of challenging that idea also. And we like really having, experiencing an ego death and moving through the hangups that were holding me back in my profession back then. And the second time with this book, it was this similar thing, like really moving through these uncomposted threads. And at that time with Trump in power and all this racism being flared up, white supremacists. I mean, you, you could really taste some of these really intense, life-threatening, like this energy that oppressed so many people or made them afraid to push against, to expand. And George Floyd, of course, you know, being killed. And in his case, not even 
belligerent or expansive or threatening the status quo or the systems of, of institutions. Uh, it's just the presence of it. This is how deep layered and debilitating that oppression, that energy is just holding you down at the deepest levels, right? So this was all coming out with the vengeance, like this realization of how ingrained it is to the point that there's not even much of a revolt. There's just sort of a complete shutdown. And this has to do with race and racial groups, but also so much has to do with the patriarchy and each and every aspect of ourselves, whether man, woman, or non-binary, we're all impacted. Nobody's immune to these oppressive layers and to understand that it really requires us to tune in to not only that courage and bravery, but how the ancestors may have done that. And I also have tapped into my ancestors and know of their history and story, you know, as slave revolters and stories I've read, a story that I talk about too in my memoir about a slave being mutilated and eventually killed and challenging this enslaver saying, I'm more free than you'll ever be. And I understood that as a child. I understood that while the slave, of course, suffered immensely and did not have any freedom physically, he was much more liberated in the spiritual sense. And I understood that liberation. So these themes have always been with me and that kind of courage pushing us and others to that point has always been a driving force. So when that came up again during George Floyd's death and right after my ancestors were talking to me that way, I knew exactly what that was all about. I needed to tap into more of that courage, more into that sort of deep, embodied understanding that I have and I had spontaneous near-death experiences in ceremonies and it was a ritual and a gathering that made it very easy for me to sort of step over that boundary, that edge. And this is because of my past experiences. So this was really pulling me in that direction and saying I needed to go there as physically challenging or scary this might be on an ego level, I knew what to do and needed to transcend that and, and not make any more excuses. So that is how that mantra has guided my life and also helped me to expand further and write the book and challenge these layers from that perspective. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. I can relate to that in my own way and also deeply understand that. So I'm so grateful that I did ask you that question. and I am too. I think that was the final piece in our interview. Thank you so much for asking. Yeah, we have this wonderful connection. And when you asked me, you know, I could feel that the guides and my ancestors being really delighted. So I'm glad that you trusted your instincts and asked me that. After all, they're really happy about that information coming through. You mentioned that the publisher of your book is offering 30% off of the purchase price with the promo code SOULAUTHORITY30. Mm, yes, yes, yes. Thank you for reminding me of that. The listeners can enter that code. You do need to go into their website, the North Atlantic Books website, 
If you are not in the U.S., unfortunately, that does not apply to the paperback copies. They don't ship internationally, but you can use that code for the ebook and for the audiobook as well. So, Lorraine, this has been absolutely wonderful to talk with you. Yeah, I feel the same. Thank you so much. It was an honor and privilege. And I call us the mother trees, the redwoods, and feel like a concentrated effort or targeted effort that I have is to support you and your listeners as much as possible and also know how rare and few of you there are. So if you want to go deeper, do check out my website. I occasionally once or twice a year offer the 10-week Soul Authority course, and it is with people just like you and your listeners who want to work through these things and learn this with me. So whoever's interested, you can also contact me, ask me when the next one is, and when I feel like I have a good group, we'll you know, offer it again and go through that journey. So be happy to guide whoever would like to do that with me. So just putting that out there. And your website again? Yes, thesacredhealingwell.com. Okay. Well, Lorraine, again, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. And be well. Yeah, same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Lorraine Van Tool. She's a shamanic eco-psychologist and a licensed clinical psychologist and the author of the book we've been talking about, Soul Authority, Liberatory Tools to Heal from Oppressive Patterns and Restore Trust in Your Heart Compass, which is available at 30% off from the publisher at northatlanticbooks.com. That's northatlanticbooks.com with the promo code SOULAUTHORITY30. Again, the promo code is SOULAUTHORITY30 at northatlanticbooks.com. That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. 